festive greetings, everybody. A very, very Merry Christmas to you all, whatever you are celebrating. May your holiday be the most amazing one ever, filled with love and happiness and family and friends, laughter and good food, remembering those who are no longer with us and knowing that they are there in spirit and creating new memories with the ones we are still fortunate enough to have with us. Thanks for stopping by and making Paranormal Prowlers Podcast part of your day. I'm your host, Tessa Morrow, and welcome to part two of the Alaska Triangle series. If you missed last week's part one episode, I really do recommend going back and listening to that one before you listen to this one. But if you're a rebel and want to listen to part two first, that's okay with me. <laughs> Now, last week, we covered just a small fraction of the thousands upon thousands who've been unfortunate enough to vanish in the Alaska Triangle. Sandra Lee Davis, Amy Fandel, Scott Fandel, Leonard Lane, Aaron Marie Gilbert, Thomas Anthony Newsy, Marianne Lynn Carver, Richard Griffiths, Paul LeMater, Valerie Sifsoff. Mary Ann Alexi, Jael Tierra Hamblin, Shana Oman, Frank Mainano, Willis Derendoff, and Doran Sanford. I covered these people's disappearances last week. My heart goes out to these individuals and their families. And may they someday be found. And boy, you know, does it just get spookier from there. While the people that I had mentioned last week went missing and have never been seen to this very day, that is not the case with One-Eyed Jack. Picture it, 1979, Toke, Alaska. One fine August day, a local makes a bone-chilling discovery on a desolate county road. Long brown hair accompanied with skeletal remains scattered along the road. Let's rewind a little. About a year earlier, the year is now 1978, a man named Jesse Burt Bishop, he is driving through Boise, Idaho, when he sees a mysterious man on the side of the road hitching for a ride. While his destination was Pendleton, Oregon, when Jesse reveals to this mysterious stranger where he is going, to Alaska, for reasons unknown, this unidentified man, he decides to tag along. Screw Oregon, I'm going to Alaska. Well, fast forward a year later to where that local is finding the discovery of the remains and the hair. Evidence also is being collected and it leads right to Jesse Burt Bishop, who, by the way, never denied murdering the man. In fact, he was really open about it. Not only did he pick the man up and bring him to Alaska, but he straight up murdered him and left him, just dumped his body like trash. So Bishop shares that the man was hitchhiking and he picks him up and they go to Alaska and sometime during the drive, the long drive, I imagine, the man begins to get on Bishop's nerves. Don't know if it's intentional or if he's just like a chatty Cathy, like Rose Nyland talking about St. Olaf stories and the gals are getting mad at her. Yes, I'm a Golden Girls fan, but... I don't know. But either way, he's getting really pissed off at this dude. And he ends up murdering him and dumping his body off on the highway. 
The murderer gave as much information and details as he possibly could about the man. He was very forthcoming, or as forthcoming a person in that situation could be. He wasn't trying to hide anything, but he, for the life of him, could not remember the name that he was told. He believed it either to be Jack or John, but really it was anybody's guess what this man's true name was. The deceased man had one very unique feature that differentiated himself from most people. He only had one eye. The unidentified man had shared with his killer that a logging accident had claimed his left eye long ago. For decades, they tried to get the man his identity back, but no luck. And in 2003, the killer dies in prison. And any answers that may have lingered die with him. To this day, One-Eyed Jack remains an unidentified person. And I just do not get it. I mean, just like when I see on my true crime shows, wife murders husband or husband murders wife because they're having a crazy affair. That's when you get a divorce. I know divorces are a pain in the ass, but uh, spending the rest of your life on the run or in prison, that's also the biggest pain of ass. So, I mean, just don't do it. But like with this guy, why did you have to murder him? This was your ride, right? You could have just kicked his ass out to the curb. I mean, then at least he would have had a fighting chance. But yeah, I just don't get it. But anyways, I really hope that one-eyed Jack, with the advancements in DNA today, I really hope that someday I wake up to see that he has been identified. Another case when it comes to a body actually being discovered, many people know about this one. Movie was done about this man. A book was written about this man. In 1992, a man's body is found in an old abandoned bus. Christopher McCandless, better known by his friends as Alexander Supertramp. He was a man who lived life to the fullest. He loved thrills and adventure. He is the subject of Into the Wild, both book and movie. He had come to the last frontier with not much on him. His plan was basically to go into the Alaskan wilderness, which is ever so gorgeous, but it could be very cruel and extremely unforgiving most times. But he wanted to do this. He wanted to thrive in the wilderness in Alaska. He wanted to live life off of the land and what it had to provide for him. Now, during his time in the wilderness, he is near the Sushana River, where he comes upon this bus. And you could tell that it didn't just run out of gas and that its occupants were on a hike to go get some gas. Talk about a long hike, right? I mean, it had long since been abandoned, and it was very obvious. He really hadn't been here very long. He first arrived in Alaska sometime in April of 1992. I'm unsure of what his lodging looked like before he found this bus. Maybe he was just lying there watching the stars, or perhaps he had a tent with him. Maybe he made a teepee. Either way, I'm sure a bus seemed like the Ritz-Carlton to him. <laughs> he makes himself at home in the bus, which provides terrific shelter for him in the Alaska wilderness. I'm sure a lot of people in that situation might go, hmm, 
the bus, cool, my home for now. Well, we fast forward now to the sixth day of September. A group of hunters are in the area. They come upon the bus. One of the men looks inside and he finds the body of Christopher McCandless. Now, at the time of his death, he only weighed 67 pounds. He was a 24-year-old man, my friends. That weight, oh my God, extremely dangerously low. I'm sure the hunter thought he found a child. He obviously died from starvation. Man, what a horrible way to go. My, my heart just goes out to him and his family. He just wanted to live life free in the wild, you know? Now, the exact date of Christopher's death, it's unknown. But he had known that he was not well and that he was probably close to death's door and that he needed help like as soon as possible. He writes a note and attaches it to the bus and it reads this. Attention possible visitors. SOS, save our souls. I need your help. I am injured, near death, and too weak to hike out. I am all alone. This is no joke. In the name of God, please remain to save me. I am out collecting berries close by and shall return this evening. Thank you. Christopher McCandless. August? And so there you have it. There's that letter. I mean, at the very end, as you can see, August? He didn't know what day it was. I don't think he even knew what month it was. Just a guess. Again, when the hunter had seen this, this was September 6th. So reading that letter, it just, it breaks my heart. I mean, how devastating is this? You know, he was going to die. And his own words, I am injured near death. And unfortunately, it's not like a popular hiking trail where there's a good chance somebody may bump into you. I think Christopher probably knew that he was most likely screwed. The bus was a 1946 International Harvester, and it had been abandoned by road workers back in 1961. So again, it had been sitting there for quite some time prior to Christopher living in it. The bus would become known as the Magic Bus, and many people would travel far and wide to get there to see this bus and where it all took place, where it ended for Christopher McCandless. It became a nuisance, however, as many people who went to go visit this magic bus would have to be rescued themselves in the process. And some, I hate to report, even died. And I, I just remember watching the TV as the news showed a video of the bus, the magic bus, being attached to an Alaska Army National Guard Boeing CH-47 Chinook and airlifting it away. Oh my. Buses, they can fly. At least in that one brief moment, people got to see something that one may see only in a fairy tale or a story of some sort that you share with a child with the most amazing imagination. A bus flying through the mountains of Alaska. What an awesome sight. The bus is now located at the Museum of the North at the University of Alaska in Fairbanks. So a bit less of a treacherous travel to go and see. And I don't know if the exhibit is open yet, but I heard that that's where the magic bus ended up. So go check it out. Museum of the North at the University of Alaska in Fairbanks. 
No need for the treacherous hike anymore. No need to, you know, possibly die going there. Besides the Kushtaka, Bigfoot, the Wendigo, and whatever else lingers in the Alaska Triangle, there's been many sightings of UFOs. Since 1998, at least 560 sightings have been reported of unidentified flying objects in Alaska. And guess what? No shocker here, a huge number of them occurring within the Triangle. In 1947, there was an encounter that had to do with two active military men. They wrote about their experience in a report, which I found on Strange Outdoors. And in this report, it says this, quote, This is to advise that two Army officers reported to the Office of the Director of Intelligence Headquarters, Alaska Department, at Fort Richardson, Alaska, that they had witnessed an object passing through the air at a tremendous rate of speed, which could not be judged as to miles per hour. The object appeared to be shaped like a sphere and did not get the impression of being saucer-like or comparable to a disc. The first officer stated that it would be impossible to give minute details concerning the object, but that it appeared to be approximately two or three feet in diameter and did not leave any vapor trail in the sky. He called on his radio to the Civil Aeronautics Administration Station at Bethel, asking what aircraft was in the vicinity, and they had no reports of any aircraft. The object he sighted was some 5 or 10 miles from the airport before his arrival, and he stated that the path did not go directly across the airport. He, of course, cannot tell whether the object was making any noise and stated that it was flying at a 1,000-foot altitude an estimated travel at 300 miles per hour. It was traveling in the direction from Bethel to Nome, which is a northwesterly direction. He noted no radio interference and is unable to describe the color other than it appeared dark, but had a definite shape and not blend into the sky, but had a definite concise outline. He clearly observed the object at this time. And around the same time as our two military men saw this mysterious object in the sky, on the ground on the USS Tilbrook, two seamen witnessed something odd as well. Quote, very fast moving red light, which appeared to be of exhaust nature, seemed to come from the southeast, moved clockwise in a large circle in the direction of and around Kodiak, and returned out in a generally southeast direction, unquote. Now, Seaman Morgan is the first to see this mysterious show in the sky, right? And he just cannot believe his eyes. It's like, holy shit, I need somebody else to see this. So he hollers for somebody else to come, and Seaman Carver comes, and he sees it too. Quote, the object was on sight for an estimated 30 seconds. No odor or sound was detected. And the object was described to have the appearance of a ball of fire about one foot in diameter. Unquote. We are still in 1947. Unsure if this is around the same time of the other two sightings, but while on duty, Lieutenant Smith 
witnesses an unidentified flying object. He tells his fellow officers that were on duty with him, and they are just kind of standing there watching in pure awe and fascination at this mysterious flying object. The official report read this, quote, Subsequently, the object seemed to be opening the range, and Smith attempted to close the range. The UFO was observed to open out somewhat, then to turn to the left and come up on Smith's quarter. Smith considered this to be a highly threatening gesture and turned out all lights in the aircraft. Four minutes later, the object appeared from view and a southeasterly direction. Yeah, I sure as hell would say that's aggressive. Opens itself up and gets behind them suddenly. That would be creepy as all hell. In 1986, fast forward, you know, some decades, Japan Airlines Flight 1628 is said to have three encounters with UFOs. Quote, the pilot reportedly thought the craft were military and paid them no mind. Moments later, he realized that the objects were keeping pace and moving erratically around his own jet. Over the next 15 minutes, the strange aircraft shadowed Flight 1628's every move with emitting bursts of blinding lights. Unquote. Okay, talk about aggressive. How eerie is that? I would be absolutely terrified. And it lasted for 50 minutes. I'm sure that felt like an eternity. Whew, creepy stuff. Speaking of aircraft... Many have flown into the Alaska Triangle, never to be seen again. January 26, 1950, a Douglas C-54 Skymaster, a military aircraft, holding an eight-man crew and 36 passengers, vanishes without a speck of a trace. Last form of communication was a radio check-in two hours into their flight. They are never heard from or seen again. Canada and the United States, they conduct several searches in the air and on foot, but nothing is ever found. It was one of the largest rescue efforts carried out between the two military forces, Canada and United States. Close to 100 American planes and Canadian planes searched the skies. Thousands of people on foot searched 350,000 square miles. The Skymaster had left Anchorage, and its destination was to Montana, and of course, as we know, it never made it. Snafu along the way during the search-rescue efforts takes place, unfortunately. Danger, it was definitely in the sky, as three planes would crash during search and rescue efforts. Thank God that there was not one single fatality with those three plane crashes, which is surprising and quite amazing. Some may consider it a miracle. Crash number one takes place January 30th. AC-47 Air Force from the 57th Fighter Wing suddenly stalls and crashes right into the McClintock Mountains, close to White Horse. While no one is killed, many are injured. The pilot walked almost nine miles to the Alaska Highway where he was able to flag down a truck who was able to call in for help for the pilot and his injured crew. Burr. I mean nine miles in the Alaskan wilderness. It's freezing ass. 
he was able to actually do, I'm just getting chills just imagining this. And himself, I'm sure the pilot, I'm sure he didn't walk away unscathed by the crash. So kudos to the pilot for not giving up when he was probably injured himself. On February 2nd, two planes along with radio stations in Yukon, they would hear unintelligible radio signals, some coming from the location that the plane that was missing had uh, failed to check into. And I know I'm going to butcher this, but a shahik. Investigating this matter, it gets no results. And unfortunately, it is here in Ashayek that crash number two would soon take place. Crash number two occurs just one week later after the first crash, that being February 7th. A C-47D-45-1037 out of Eilson Air Force Base out of the 5010th wing is out searching for the missing 44 people the plane, and any sign of debris whatsoever. When they crash on a mountain slope just south, Ashahik Lake, thankfully all 10 people survive. The final crash, crash number three, would happen on February 16th. It was a Royal Canadian Air Force C-47KJ-936 crashing close to Snag. All four people survive, and for a short time, it is this wreckage that many believe to be the remains of the missing Skymaster. Just four days after the third rescue plane crash, on February 20th, the search is shut down. And notifications are sent to the missing people's families telling them that their loved ones have not been found and every single one of them is presumed dead. Those families have not given up, though. In 2012, they start a petition through the We the People petition system in hopes that the search will continue. And at that point, it had been 62 years. Now, it's been 73 years. It's so sad that these 44 people have never been found. Not one single person. It would be nice if they could be found so their families could lay them properly to rest and so they won't live the rest of their lives wondering where their beloved family members are. Last year, that being 2022, a group of drones in a mission to explore the areas that are hard to, you know, get into take place. And I'm unsure if they found anything. I guess not, or I would have seen something, but that was in recent times. So I'm glad that at least... Something is happening. Someone's poking the bear. And I'm hoping the search continues as these people deserve to be buried in a respectful manner. And their families damn well deserve it too. October 16th, 1972. A private plane carrying United States House of Representatives Thomas Hale Boggs, Alaska Congressman Nick Begick, Russell Brown, and bush pilot Don Johns leaves Anchorage and is en route to Juneau, but never makes it. To this day, the men or the plane have never been located. They were in a twin-engine Cessna 310. The men were headed to a fundraiser for Nick, and for several weeks an extensive search takes place. 50 civilian planes, 40 military aircraft, 
several boats covering a lot of ground, sky, and water. Over 32,000 square miles. But none of the men or the Cessna are ever found. On September 9th of 2013, Alan Foster... He was a seasoned pilot who had around 10,000 flight hours under his belt. He goes for a flight in his Piper PA-32-260 one day, and he takes off into the sky, something he's done countless times, and he loses contact shortly afterwards. They say that everything was normal, that Alan showed no signs whatsoever of any type of stress, anxiety, depression, anything else out of the ordinary. He communicates where he would land if he ran into bad weather. This is something that the seasoned pilot would often do. But less than 20 minutes after takeoff, somewhere between Malaspina Glacier and the Gulf of Alaska, the radar shows the Piper dropping to an altitude of 1,100 feet immediately after he vanishes. Neither Alan or his Piper are ever found. Besides Kushtaka, Bigfoot, Wendigo, aliens, and whatever else lingers about, Alaska Triangle is also home to the dumping grounds of some of the last frontier's worst serial killers. Through 1971 and finally ending in 1983, a heinous monster was hunting down young women. Robert Hansen is finally apprehended October 27th of 1983. Talk about leading a double life. Robert, he had a wife. He had children. He was a successful business owner having his very own bakery. He was a well-liked individual within his community. Little did his family and friends know that he was the man known as the Butcher Baker, wreaking havoc. Robert Hansen was a man of many skills. Besides baking to the locals' heart's content, he was an avid and very skilled hunter, something that he would use to his advantage when it came to hunting his victims. He kidnapped, raped, hunted, and murdered his way through Alaska, including in the Alaska Triangle. He would seek the company of prostitutes, acting like your regular typical John. He would lure his unsuspecting prey with promises of money, and once he had them where he wanted them, trusting him, he would take them at gunpoint back to his house, and he always planned, you know, when his wife and kids would be gone, so when wife and kids are away, he plays. And he would rape the victim there. He would then take the woman, sometimes by his very own plane, to a desolate area in the wilderness, where he would release her, only to hunt her down like a hunter would a deer. Talk about extremely cruel. That false hope when she is released. But these ladies, they never stood a chance with this extremely skilled, avid hunter who had set several hunting records in town, which is no easy feat in Alaska. 
What's super sad about this, and don't get me wrong, everything about Robert Hansen and what he did is super sad. But before he would claim the life of his very first known victim, a few days earlier, he had assaulted a prostitute. Now, thank the heavens, she manages to escape, and that's the good part. That's the great part. She got away, and she got to live her life. The bad part, the shitty part, the heinous part, is she unfortunately would not report the man until five days later. By the time she reported him, guess what? He had already murdered an 18-year-old woman named Celia Van Santen. The good, the bad, and the ugly. The good, she got away with her life. The bad, she didn't report the assault until days later. And the ugly, a woman dies. Several bodies of women are suddenly being found in and around Anchorage, including one woman who has never been identified to this very day, Yalutna Annie. And it is this unidentified woman that Robert Hansen claimed was his very first victim. In mid-July in 1980, workmen find a woman's skeletal remains just north of Anchorage only remaining victim who was yet to be identified. But again, with the advancements of DNA, I hope that her family and community have not given up hope as someday, who knows, maybe we'll be reading in the newspaper or seeing in the news that, hey, Lutna Annie is actually whatever, whatever. Other victims include Megan Emmerich, who is still missing. Mary Kathleen Thiel, who, like Megan, is still missing, but authorities believe her to be buried somewhere in Resurrection Bay. Joanne Messina and her ever-so-loyal dog, and Roxanne Eastland, who is also missing. Lisa Futrell, she vanishes in 1980, and her body is finally discovered in 1984. Cheryl Morrow, no relation, had been promised $300 for nude pictures in the late 1981, and she is never seen alive again. Her body is found the following year in 1982. Andrea Alturi had gone with the intentions to conduct exotic dances for an unknown male. She vanishes, and a search in Hansen's home later would find a fish necklace that had belonged to the 24-year-old woman, who has never been found. Sue Luna, like Morrow, was offered $300 for photos and she vanishes in May 1982 and would be found April 1984. Horseshoe Harriet would be discovered in April 1984 and her identity would remain a mystery like Yalutna Annie, not with a lack of trying, and that is until recent times. With DNA and what it's becoming, in 2021, a break in the case. Horseshoe Harriet now becomes Robin Pelkey. She got her name back. Yes! It took 37 years, but by golly, this woman got her name back. Now, I saved this article when it first was released that this woman was identified, and I was saving it just for when I did this episode. So here we go. It reads this. Fox released October 23rd, 2021, and it's titled, Alaska Troopers Identify Serial Killer's Victim with DNA Match After 37 Years. Quote, a victim of an Alaskan serial killer has finally been identified after almost 40 years thanks 
to genetic genealogy and a DNA match. Robin Pelkey, who was 19 at the time, was killed by Robert Hansen, known as the Butcher Baker, in the early 1980s. For 37 years, she was only known as Horseshoe Harriet, one of a dozen or so of Hansen's victims. I would like to thank all the troopers, investigators, and analysts that have diligently worked on this case over the last 37 years, Alaska Department of Public Safety Commissioner James Cockrell said in a statement. Without their hard work and tenacity, the identity of Miss Pelkey may have never been known. Pelkey, a sex worker, had no identification on her when investigators found her. Hansen told investigators that he had taken her to Horseshoe Lake in a small plane, murdered her, and discarded the body, but he knew nothing about her. Pelkey was buried in the Anchorage Municipal Cemetery as an unknown, but investigators exhumed her body in 2014 when Hansen died in prison at the age of 75. A bone sample provided DNA, which troopers used to generate a profile and add to a public access gene database in April. Troopers found several close matches and identified close relatives located in Arkansas and Alaska. A relative in Arkansas provided DNA that allowed troopers to positively identify Pelkey, and her family was notified in September. No one could say why her parents did not report her missing at the time. Hansen abducted women, many of them sex workers, in the wilderness just north of Anchorage when the city's population boomed due to construction of the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. Glenn Floth, a retired state trooper who helped apprehend Hansen, said during a 2008 interview that Hansen started to target sex workers when he learned that they were harder to track and less likely to be missed. Hansen was convicted in the deaths of four women but confessed to killing more. He led investigators to a spot north of Anchorage where he pointed out where he had buried 17 of his victims. Troopers dug up the remains of eight of the women, allowing them to work to identify a total of 12 of Hansen's victims. Only 11 have now been identified, with the last one known as Yalutna Annie, believed to be Hansen's first victim, discovered near Yalutna Lake. Thanks to the genetic genealogy effort that helped identify Pelkey, troopers remain hopeful that the final victim may be identified sooner rather than later. Randy McFerrin, an Alaska State Troopers cold case investigator, told the Associated Press that the process could take up to a year. Unquote. My heart really does go out to Robin, and even though I know it's not the outcome that her family had wanted, at least they don't have to live the rest of their lives not knowing what happened to their precious family member. And she can now be buried respectfully and be at peace, I hope. Another woman who got her identity back, Delyn Frey, was last seen March 1983 and would be found in 1985 by a pilot. She was buried as Jane Doe in Anchorage and was identified by an Alaska state trooper in 1989 when he recognized jewelry that was on the body matching to the same from a case file photo. So that's pretty cool. Another person identified. Paula Galding was kidnapped and flown to a desolate area in April of 1983, her body being found a few months later in September of the same year. Malay Larson was last seen July 1981, and her body would be found April 1984. 
Teresa Watson was reported missing in late March 1983. She was offered $300, seems to be the magic number with this guy, 300, for one to two hours of time together. She's found May 17, 1984. Angela Lynn Federn had disappeared in February 1983, and her body is found one late April day in 1984. Tamara Peterson, she was last heard from August 7th of 1982 when she told her family on the phone that she was offered money, my guess is $300, to pose for some photographs. She's never seen alive again. Hansen, thank goodness, dies August 21st of 2014 due to natural causes. Something that he robbed each and every one of his victims from doing themselves, dying from natural causes. Many of his victims would be found in the Alaska Triangle. Between 1979 and 1981, Thomas Bunday took pleasure in murdering women throughout the Fairbanks area. He was, like Hansen, a respected and well-liked person in the community. He was a respected authority figure at the Eilson Air Force Base. Thomas, he was married to his high school sweetheart, and it is then in 1967 that he would join the Air Force, moving up the ranks to technical sergeant. And it is while serving in Southeast Asia that his wife shacks up with another man and becomes pregnant due to this infidelity. Many men would have up and left after such a betrayal, but for reasons unknown, not Thomas. He stayed with this woman, this cheater, and they had a daughter together later on. But the relationship was severely strained due to the cheating scandal. In the 1970s, he is sent to Alaska where problems fester and he begins visiting a psychotherapist. August 29th of 1979, 19-year-old Fairbank local Glinda Sodman, she vanishes without a trace. Her body would be discovered a couple of months later. And fast forward to June 13th, 1980, Doris O'Ring, who, by the way, is only 11 years old, she disappears. Her brother would share with the authorities that just a couple days prior to her disappearing, that she was seen by her brother talking to an unknown man in a blue car And this man had on an Air Force uniform, so he stood out. And I found a small article titled Skull Identified as That of Girl, and it reads this. The Alaska State Troopers say a skull found near Eilson Air Force Base is that of an 11-year-old Fairbanks girl missing since 1980. The skull was identified as that of Doris O'Ring and was last seen June 13, 1980, Troopers said Monday. She is believed to be the last of five victims killed by Thomas Richard Bunday between 1979 and 1981. Bunday killed in March 1983 when his motorcycle veered in front of a truck in Vernon, Texas. His death came the day after troopers interviewed him about the murders and were preparing to arrest him, unquote. January 31st of 1981, Marlene Peters, 20, she goes missing while hitchhiking from Fairbanks to Anchorage. Her decomposed remains would be found a few months later in May. And weeks after Marlene disappeared, 
16-year-old Wendy Wilson is on her way to her boyfriend's house, but she never makes it. 1981, an 18-year-old girl named Lori King vanishes just days after Marlene's body is recovered. And October 1981, the body is found right next to Air Force Base. So with Doris's brother saying the victim was last seen talking to a man in an Air Force uniform and her skull was found by the Air Force Base and now this woman's body is found in the same location, it's hard to ignore the fact that the serial killer preying on women, on young women, may very well be a military man and an investigation in the Air Force Base is conducted. Now, fast forward February 3rd of 1982, and only three men remain on the list of suspects. One of those men, Thomas Bunday, who at this time had already been sent, as we know from the newspaper article I just read, over to Texas. He is apprehended March 7th of 1983. He admits that he was responsible for the murders. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Denial? Well, it's definitely not his last name. He even describes the murders in full-on detail. He was questioned about a sixth murder, but he denied that one. I believe him, too. I mean, why would he admit to five murders and deny a sixth? Really, what is one extra person? I mean, it's not going to change his sentence. He's already in deep water. In that instant, he didn't have anything to gain or lose by lying about that sixth murder. So what do you think happened next? Me, personally, I would think, okay, this man just admitted to being a serial killer, giving details about each and every murder that he ever conducted. I would think that would be the end of it. Throw his ass in the jail cell, throw away the key, and pray he gets a date with old Sparky someday. Well, shit. I guess I better look at the calendar because it must have been opposite day or something because, believe it or not, he was released. This is like something out of a horribly written movie. Even though he confessed to multiple murders, he is a free man for now because, get this, there was no warrant for the arrest. Like, wait a second, hold the phone, are you serious? This is absolute bullshit. So Alaska, they're scrambling, they have to issue an arrest warrant for Thomas Bunday. As a free man, Thomas decides to end things on his own terms, knowing he is facing to spend the rest of his life in a jail cell And with an arrest warrant hanging over his head like an eager noose, he goes for a final ride on his motorcycle where he purposely veers into oncoming traffic where he's hit head-on with a truck. He dies instantly. This is considered suicide, and sadly the man who murdered his way through Alaska was able to die on his own terms. I still can't believe that they had him, and he was released. Again. What a shitty movie. The final killer that used the Alaska Triangle as a dumping ground that I want to talk about, but certainly not the last, and there are several others, including Israel Keys, but the one I want to talk about is Michael Allen Silka. Michael, he was a spree killer who would claim the lives of nine people in less than one month span, starting in April on the 28th day and claiming his final victim, May 19th of 1984. 
Now, unlike Robert Hansen and Thomas Bunday, who were well-liked, respected men in their communities, Michael Allen Silka, he was a troubled young man who had many run-ins with the law back home in Chicago, Illinois. He, along with his brother, run away where they live in the Canadian wilderness for a short time before calling the mountain wild man life quits and coming back home. Just months before graduating in 1977, Michael is arrested when he was found carrying an antique black powder muzzle-loading rifle around the suburbs. Later that year, he would be arrested for the exact same thing. Seems like somebody isn't learning from his previous mistakes. It is soon after his arrest that he enlists in the army, and in 1981, he is stationed at Fort Wainwright, which is located on the east side of Fairbanks, Alaska. He is discharged that very same year. Big shocker there if I ever knew one. Army records reveal that he was considered an expert marksman with the M16 rifle and grenade launcher. During his short time with the United States Army, he had many encounters and run-ins with the military police. Again, shocker. He was a definite hothead, even discharging a weapon in the barracks. After Michael is discharged, he heads back home to Chicago, but old habits die hard and he is found once again in hot water because he doesn't know how to handle his damn weapons. He goes to court but he skips Bond and he flees back to Alaska, where his murderous spree will soon begin. On April 29, 1984, police question a man at his home when it is discovered a bloody mound is right there, right by his cabin. He claims that he had recently killed a moose and the blood is from the moose. And his neighbor, a man named Roger Culp, he had gone missing the day before the bloody discovery. Many witnesses reported seeing the now-missing man going into Michael's cabin with Michael, and a short time later, they heard eight gunshots. One, two, three, no, eight. It is unknown why this was not reported immediately. When authorities go back to the cabin, they find that it had since been abandoned. The blood is tested, and the test comes back, shocker, not as a moose, but as a human being. Fast forward a few weeks later, it is now May 17, 1984, and between the hours of 2 and 4 p.m., six villagers had gone to a boat landing where earlier reports of a man who looked rather on the mountain man side had been frequenting, and they all vanish. Six people in two hours. Blood and used cartridge casings are found at the site. A couple of days later, a search is conducted and they do find Michael Allen Silka in a river with his canoe and a boat that belonged to one of the missing men, Fred Burke, sitting nearby. Troopers ask for Michael to surrender and come peacefully, but hmm, he has other intentions and plans as he grabs his rifle and takes aim at a helicopter that was part of the search and shoots. It goes right through the windshield and hits a 34-year-old man, a trooper named Troy Duncan. Sadly, this is fatal, and he dies instantly. Captain Donald Lawrence is also injured. Trooper Jeff Hall, he returns fire, and Silka is killed. 
On May 20th, he is cremated, and ironically, his ashes are scattered at Sitka National Cemetery, which is right next to Alaska State Troopers Training Academy. Well, with the murderer now deceased and the looming threat is thankfully now gone, the search continues for the missing Fred Burke, whose boat was found with Michael before the shootout took place, Albert Hagen, who was from Alaska but had went to California and had been there for the past 10 years and had just come back six weeks earlier to be reunited with his family. Skilled cabin builder Del Majeski, Larry Joe McVeigh, who was a disabled Vietnam veteran who was severely injured during the Vietnam War, the Klein family consisting of Lyman, his pregnant wife Joyce, and their two-year-old sweet child, a boy named Marshall, and of course his neighbor Roger Culp. He is still missing as well. By the beginning of summer in 1984, four bodies of the missing people, that being of Fred Burke, Lyman Klein, Delma Dejeski, and Vietnam vet Larry Joe McVeigh, had been found in the Tanana River. The others, they have not been found. Again, everybody, if you have any information about any of the cases that I talked about, that being plain, missing person, one-eyed Jack, you alluding to Annie, anybody, please call Anchorage Police Department at 907-786-8900 or the Alaska State Troopers at 907-783-0972. This week's special city shoutouts go to... Manama, Bayron, Van, Texas, East Syracuse, New York, Silver Spring, Maryland, Newton Abbey, Northern Ireland, and Benbrook, Canada. As always, everybody, thank you so much for stopping by. It's extremely appreciated. Did you enjoy this week's episode? Listen to the others. They are all awesome. Haven't heard every single one yet? No need to fret. You could head up any of those podcast platforms such as Blueberry, TuneIn Radio, Overcast, CastBox, Google Podcast. Basically, wherever you may roam to hear your other spooky podcasts, you'll probably find Paranormal Prowlers podcast lurking in the background. Everybody, whatever you're celebrating, have a wonderful holiday. Happy Hanukkah, happy holidays, Merry Christmas. Everybody, have a splendid one. <laughs>